It's your money, honey, so you decide, I guess. Good afternoon, Mary. How's Tommy doing on the grill this morning? Well, no one slings a spatula like you, Charlie, but he's given it the old college try. I'll be honest, I'm glad your shift's starting soon, though. He's so green, he can't tell the difference between sand and sea dust. I know. I mean, yesterday, that boy poured sugar on the fries and salt on the strawberries. <laughs> I shudder to imagine the state of my kitchen when I go back there. <laughs> Mary, am I seeing Miss High and Mighty herself talking to this guy? That's Mrs. Eliza Smith to you, Charlie. And you'll never guess what she's doing here today. Well, I'm guessing it isn't for the crepe Suzette. That lady has more money than Pharaoh. She can just have one of her private chefs whip them up. <laughs> no. So she comes in, she pulls me aside, and she tells me she's had a dream. A truly marvelous dream. She said she dreamed that she was meant to give a substantial gift of cash to two strangers that would be life-changing. Well, I do happen to know two somebodies that can use some life-changing moolah. <laughs> well, we don't fit the bill. She said she would just know. Unbelievable. We have a crazy witch lady handing out money, a young pup messing up my kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> How was everything today, hon? Mary, you know, nobody makes a cup of coffee like you do, and nobody drinks a cup of coffee as good as I do. <laughs> so, have you decided whether to take me up on that dinner date or not? Hey, a man can dream, can he? Hey. What's this? A gift from a friend. Hmm. Ooh, doggy. Who left this? This is filled with a lot of money. A lot of money. $3,000. Well, you know what they say, finders keepers. And I found it, so. I'm going to keep it. $3,000. Unbelievable. Well, what are you going to do with all that money? Well, the first thing I'm going to do is go down to the new Ford dealership, pay cash for a brand new cherry red Mustang convertible. See, Mayor, had you taken me up on my dinner offer, you would be riding in style right next to me. This is my lucky day. This is going to change my life forever. Well, in the meantime, I'm going to leave you a juicy tip. Say now, Mary, what kind of tip did our Donnie boy give you today? A quarter. A quarter! The man gets a gift of more cash than I make in a year, and he leaves me a whopping 25 cents. Well, he's never left me a tip before, so... I suppose I should be grateful. You know, he didn't seem very grateful, though. He was happy, thrilled even, but he didn't care where it came from or who gave it to him, just that it was his now to spend. Well, goodness, Sugar, what's wrong? Please, there must have been some sort of mistake. I just found this envelope full of money, and it must be a mistake. Well, it looks like you're a lucky day. It says, gift from a friend. You should just take it and be happy. You don't understand. This is a lot of money, and I... Well, what is it? What's wrong? 
My husband, Joe, he lost his job last July, and we'd slipped a bit on the bills. He's been taking on odd jobs just to get by, and he finally found steady work last week. But then yesterday, they came and shut off our electricity. And then this morning, I got this notice from the bank saying we have until Monday to pay back what we owe, or they're going to take the house. That's awful, sweetie. So this morning, I dropped the kids off at school, and I came here with my very last dollar. I sat, and I drank my cup of coffee, and I read the notice over and over, and I prayed. I prayed for a miracle. I prayed for answers and a way out of this horrible nightmare of the last few months. I was crying and praying when that nice lady offered me her handkerchief. It, it must have been her. Well, it sounds like God sent you your miracle. But why would she do that? Why would she just give that away? Well, maybe she's had blessings before and she wanted to pass it on. Maybe she's crazy. Maybe she had a dream that she needed to do this to change somebody's life. I've got to get to the bank. If you ever see her again, would you let her know that, I don't know, that I will forever believe in the goodness of people, that God used her to answer my prayers, and that my life has been changed because of her. I'm so grateful, thankful. I can't even think of a word big enough to express it. You bet I will. Are you crying, Mary? No. It's all those onions you boys are cutting earlier. I'll tell you what. How about we bet on who has to roll the silverware tonight? Um, I say we flip for it. Say, you don't happen to have a quarter now, do you? A quarter? Charlie, you're too much. Christmas Day, 1990. My parents were trying hard to practice radical hospitality and connect that with evangelistic opportunity. So they got connected with the International Students Coordinator at Missouri Southern State College in Joplin, Missouri, my hometown, and asked if there are any students there from overseas who didn't have anywhere to go on Christmas Day. And could we have them over to our house for Christmas dinner? And the, the person said, oh yes, absolutely. We've got a, a married couple, young married couple from Japan. This is their first time in America. They don't, of course, celebrate Christmas like we do over there. And said, would you be willing to have them over? My parents, absolutely, yes, we'd love to have them. So Christmas Day came, and my mom pulled out all the stops, right? She just went completely overboard, like the, the, the most, the best she could do, the best hospitality she could offer, bright red tablecloth, 
with an evergreen centerpiece and candles lit, you know, carols playing softly in the background, and enough good old-fashioned Midwestern cooking to feed, well, more people than we're going to be there, that's for sure. (laughs) She even made us change out of our PJs into nice clothes on Christmas Day. Can you believe that? Two students arrived. My parents greeted them at the front door. And, you know, they weren't fluent English speakers, but they spoke it well enough for us to converse. And, and um, they also did something that day that completely threw off my parents' Christmas Day groove. As, as they came to the door and my father and mother were greeting them, and us kids are kind of looking around, the, you know, back, I've never met someone from Japan, you know, we're looking around through the door. And, and, and the, the husband reached you know, out and handed my dad a a bottle of what I assume was some very expensive sake, Japanese rice wine. By my recollection, it looked a lot like that. And and my mom was like, oh, uh, thank you. And dad kind of ushered him in the door, and as they got past my parents toward the living room, mom looked at dad, and dad looked at mom, and And he gave her that look that every husband gets the second he gets married. You know, you guys, you know what I'm talking about, right? The second you get married, God gives you a look to give your wife, and it's this one. Mm. (laughs) I don't know what to do with this. You know, mom runs into the kitchen, she calls her best friend Deb, she says, what do I do with this? And she's like, I don't know, I've never had it before either. So they just kind of stuck it in the fridge. And we ended up having a real nice dinner, got to meet some new friends, you know. They hung around for a while like they were, I don't know, expecting a drink. <laughs> uh, my parents never served it. They had no idea what to do with this. What do you do as a teetotaler when someone brings a gift of booze to your house for Christmas dinner? It gets a little awkward. Probably all of us have had to deal with the awkwardness that comes from being in a social situation where all the norms of acceptable public behavior go out the window, right? How many of you, show me your hand, how many of you have ever been in a situation where where someone completely throws what's normally accepted public behavior right out the window? Anybody ever? Yeah, it's awkward, isn't it? It's really like, oh, that's not what you're, don't point, gee whiz. Um, People over here pointing at each other. It's uncomfortable, right? It's uncomfortable. That's what happened in our text for today. So if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, open them to Luke 7.36. Luke 7.36 is where we're going to be today. Uh, Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad you're here today. If you're new at Chapel Rock, I'd love to meet you. When we're done, I'll be down front. Please come down and say hi. Uh, For those of you joining us online, appreciate you logging in. We'd love for you to visit us uh, here on site if you're local to Indy, but uh, if not, just we're, we're glad that you're doing that. Take a second when we're done and click up here and go to that online connection card. Let us know that you're watching, how many people are watching with you. If you haven't filled yours out here in the room, uh, just tear that out of your bulletin and lay it in the seat next to you and our ushers will collect that later. Last Sunday, we started a sermon series called The Diner. And we're looking uh, from now until uh, Thanksgiving at the meals that Jesus eats with people in Luke's gospel. And and some really fascinating things happen in in these passages that surround the meals that Jesus eats with people. Generally, you've got a few kind of unlikely dining partners. You've got some different people sitting near the same at the same table, kind of like you saw in our drama today. 
In our text, Jesus is eating a meal with a Pharisee. We learn his name is Simon, other than um, Joseph, uh, uh, excuse me, other than Nicodemus. Uh, he's the only Pharisee who's ever named in Scripture. He's eating a meal with this man named Simon. The meal is interrupted quite dramatically. So what I want to do today is just teach through the text. Just kind of want to jiggle all the doorknobs and uncover every rock and just kind of work our way through this. Because when you understand the cultural context of what's happening here, the, the, the go-to application, the one that you think, where you think Jesus is going with this, changes. Once you get culturally what's happening here, the, the, the expectation of what Jesus is going to say shifts a little bit. And when we're all on the same page, we'll talk about what this means for us. In the passage immediately preceding this one, Jesus is catching some criticism from the people in his culture because he's becoming known as a guy who hangs out with drunks and sinners. And they're comparing him to John the Baptist, and they're saying both these guys are crazy, right? John the Baptist is all like out there in the desert eating bugs and honey, and, and Jesus is in there partying with the, the freaks and geeks, and it's just like, who are these guys? Because they sure seem like prophets, in fact, in chapter 7, verse 16, the people call Jesus a prophet, and it just doesn't match up. How come a prophet, how come this good man is eating with these bad people? Jesus has a reputation as a righteous man, but he's also gaining a reputation as someone who eats with sinners. And that sets up the conflict in our text. Look at this with me in Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now the phrase have dinner with, we don't know that it was the evening meal. It literally just says to eat with him, but typically that was the big meal of the day. So it's probably dinner. I think the NIV's translation is correct there. And it says that they reclined at the table. Now they ate dinner different than you and I did. Okay, the, it, the Romans are the ones who named this, but it was pretty universally accepted all across uh, the, the Middle East and, and ancient Near East to use what the Romans called the triclinium. Let me show you a picture of this. This is how they would eat. Triclinium, all right, tri for three. So there are three couches laid out around a central table, and everyone is kind of just chilling on this thing. They're just, they're just laying there, kind of propped up on one elbow, just grazing, you know, and the servants would come in, and they, they had access to the table that way, and they could come in and put more food there as the courses rolled out. It's right in the middle of the room, and you can see all their faces are really close to each other, right? They can talk. They can have a great conversation. Now, some of you are looking at this going, that's how I want to watch the Colts game today, you know, 14 inches away from the nachos. I'm just going to dig right in. Here's, now, here's something else, that just for your Bible context for you to know, okay? In the la at the Last Supper, it was probably like this. Because it says in John's Gospel that, that John leaned his head against Jesus' chest and asked him, who is it that's going to betray you? How was John able to do that? Because they were sitting there like this. And John is literally right in front of Jesus on this triclinium. So when John asks, who is it that's going to betray you? His head is right here against Jesus' chest. That's how. They're eating like this. That's how that worked. 
So this is the kind of meal that Jesus would have been eating. They're reclining at the table, okay? Now, in first century Israel, it was considered an act of virtue to invite a teacher or a scholar to your home for dinner, especially if they're visiting from out of town. If they come in and they're teaching in the synagogue, like, it's a, it's a good thing. You get some serious social credit if you invite Jesus uh, to be there. That's what Simon is doing, but I think he's also testing him. We'll see that play out. Look with me at verse 37. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, just to get technical for a second, the phrase in that town is grammatically speaking the indirect object of the, the phrase a sinner who lived. Now here's what that means. It's like the text is saying she's the town sinner. Grammatically, that's what's happening. Remember Otis? In the Andy Griffith show? Town drunk, right? She's the town tramp. That's what this is saying. That, that, that's who this woman is. Luke's trying to be discreet about her job. <laughs> he will be less discreet as we go on. She brings an alabaster jar of perfume. If you've ever seen it, it's, alabaster is quite beautiful. It looks like kind of white, marbled. It's really pretty. <laughs> it's clean. It's pure. Her jar is clean and pure. Her life, not so much. Verse 38. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, how in the world could she do that? Well, it's because they're laying around that table. That's how. It's in the middle of the room. The outside edges of the room are empty. And she's able to, to be near Jesus' feet. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. She's able to stand at his feet because of the way the table is laid out. But why is she even there well, we'll see that in a minute. The text says she's weeping. The word could be translated she's wailing. <laughs> she's lamenting. She's just crying her eyes out. In fact, there's an emphasis in the word there on the noise that, G, that, that she would have been making in her crying. All right? The word appears about 40 times in the NIV. Luke uses it more than anybody else. I think there's something in this word about just this intense sobbing. You know, I mean, I want you to see this, okay? She is sobbing. She is convulsing, all right? Tears just raining down, snot. She's having an ugly cry. Luke likes this word because, it, boy, it, it, you get the image. If you've ever seen somebody have that kind of reaction, that's what she's doing here. But why? Why is she crying? Well, we'll see in a bit. The next line is where we find out what kind of woman she is. The text says that she wet Jesus' feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now to us here in the West, I'm, I'm just kind of scanning the crowd real quick. I don't see any of you women that I can see at least from here with your head covered. This is normal for us here in the West. In Jesus' culture, a woman never, ever uncovered her hair in public unless you had one particular job. Those kind of women did. Nobody else. That was for your husband. 
and for God. In fact, one woman in the ancient world even bragged that the ceiling beams in her home had never seen her hair. You, you just didn't do that. And here's this woman. It sounds weird to us, but culturally what's happening is she is doing something that would have been seen, it immediately would have given away what she does for a living. And now she's touching Jesus, and she's kissing his feet. And you need to understand, this kiss was not erotic. The, the New Testament never uses the word kiss in an erotic sense. It was, it was the same kind. In fact, this word is the word, half of the times it's used in the New Testament only appears about six times. Half of them are in reference to what Judas does to betray Jesus. Same word. It's the kiss of greeting. And, and pe- we don't do it here. In America, it's a firm handshake, right? It, 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 all over the world, it's the two, like France, you know, you'll see them on either cheek. You know, it's, it's that. That's the idea here. All right? Now, here's the thing. Luke does something really interesting with the grammar, and he uses a, a certain verb tense, and it's, it's not what it's doing. It's not like a, a looking at a snapshot of it later. Instead, he uses a verb tense that indicates you're right there in the room. You're seeing this happen. It's like we go live to our bureau in Jerusalem to watch. It's a live shot. It's a live camera feed. Those of you watching online, it's exactly what you're doing right now. Right? It's, 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 it's a live shot. What he's trying to do is to get you to be there in the room. He, he wants you to, to hear this woman's sobbing, to hear her tears falling down and splatting on Jesus' feet. He, he wants you to hear the gasp of intaked breath from the rest of the people at the table. <gasps> he, he wants you to smell the perfume. You're there in the room. Now look at this. This woman's totally overcome with emotion, and in a little bit we're going to find out why. Verse 39, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he's thinking, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she's a sinner. Now here's where we learn that this is a test, right? Earlier in the chapter, in verse 16, the people call Jesus a prophet. He's doing prophet stuff. And so this Pharisee, who's probably older than him, invites him to his house to test him. Is he really from God? Is he really a prophet? And when he does that, he makes a huge mistake. Let's keep going. Verse verse 40. Jesus answered him. Now, did you get that? He answered him. Simon thought to himself. He didn't say it out loud. He thought to himself. And Jesus is going to answer his unspoken thought. (laughs) I love it. Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. They owed him, one owed him 500 denarii, 500 days wages, a year and a half of income, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Right in the middle of dinner. Right in the middle of dinner. Jesus tells this story. (laughs) He just stops. It's this weird scene. This woman's having an ugly cry at his feet. The whole thing stops, and Jesus goes, now's a good time for his parable. He just tells a story. But as was often the case with Jesus' stories, they are designed to subvert societal norms. 500 denarii, I did the math based on the average daily wage in the state of Indiana. It's about $75,000. 
Now, it might be more for you, it might be less. It's about a year and a half's worth of income. So I've just took the average of based on what Google said and did the math. So one guy owes this money lender, we'll call him a payday loan place. One guy owns him 75 grand, the other 7,500 bucks. The, the guy says, you know what, you're never going to be able to pay this off. Oh, just don't worry about it. You just, just go. You're, it's forgiven. You don't have to do it. You don't have to pay it back. How would you feel? <laughs> you, but it doesn't matter what size debt you owe, right? Like, yes! Can you imagine if all of a sudden your mortgage company came to you and just said, you know what, don't bother with the next 10 years. Just forget about it. Just be transformative. In fact, the word translated forgive means to release from obligation. You don't have to pay it back. You're under no obligation to do that anymore. In fact, the word is related to the word in the New Testament for joy and the word for grace. Jesus tells this story. He asks a question, which one of you th do you think would love him more? And, and this is how Simon responds in verse 43. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. <laughs> you think? You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Now, here's where Jesus' theological trap begins to spring shut. See, I, Simon makes a correct judgment. He says the right thing. And the irony is, he says the right thing, he makes a correct judgment after making a colossally bad one moments earlier. He, Simon was right about the parable. He was very, very wrong about Jesus. And here's where Jesus twists the knife a little bit. Because the word translated correctly pertains to conforming closely to an accepted norm or practice. Here, here's Luke's little inside joke. Simon's judgment conformed perfectly to the truth, what was normal and expected. Simon's actions did not. What Simon said conformed to the truth. What Simon did didn't. Jesus is about to call him out. Look at verse 44. Then he turned to the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? Now hit pause. Remember the table, right? The triclinium. Jesus, she's at his feet. He's across the table from Simon. Jesus then turns, he's looking at Simon, he turns away from Simon and says, do you see this woman? He's speaking to Simon, but he's looking at her. She is directly in line with Simon. And Jesus says, do you see her? Of course he sees her. He just doesn't see her. Do you see this woman? I came to your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, a little bit of hyperbole there, I think, from Jesus, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not pour oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Here's where Jesus springs the trap shut. First of all, he sees her. Simon refused to do that. Now, here, here's what, like, how, I don't know about you, but when I first read this, I'm like, how in the world did she even get in? Like, are the servants not doing their job? Because we get the impression that Simon is probably wealthy. Here's the deal. In the first century, it was considered an act of virtue to open your doors if you had a feast for the poor. And they could come in and sit in the dark in the corner and wait. 
And when the meal was over and everyone was getting up to leave, the servants would then portion out leftovers. The, the, the remainder of the meal, so it wouldn't go to waste, and they would give it to the poor. But you had to be there, at the, you had to wait through the whole thing. That's, that's the deal, that's the gig. You got to wait for the whole thing, and then yes, you can have a little extra. It was normal in that culture. It was an act of social credit to do this good deed for the poor. That's what Simon is doing. That's even how she got in, okay? And so, you know, they're, they're supposed to wait on the fringes. Simon's rebuke of the woman is not, I want you to hear me, it's not because she came in uninvited. It's because she didn't follow the rules, she got up when she should have stayed down. She acted when she should have remained silent and quiet in the corner. Simon is rebuking the woman. He's thinking bad about her because she's not following the rules. And the reason she's not following the rules is that Simon didn't follow the rules. Jesus says, it's, it's totally accepted custom if you have a guest to your home in Jesus' culture, you offer them water to wash their feet. Think about it. Dry, dusty roads, sandals, do, hot culture, do the math. Stinks. It's refreshing. The same thing with the oil. Hot, dry culture, sun beating down. You give them oil for their head as a refreshing. The kiss of greeting, saying, you're welcome in my home. Jesus got none of that. In fact, rabbinic literature from that time frame says that hosting a rabbi was a great honor. There's a, there's a book called the Babylonian Talmud, okay? It's a commentary on the law, and it says this. The Talmud reads, if one partakes of a meal at which a scholar is present, it is as if he feasted on the effulgence of the divine presence. So when Simon calls Jesus teacher, he's acknowledging that this is a scholar this is a righteous man, and he deserved special courtesies, not insults. But Jesus, all he got from Simon was insults. Grossly insulting to Jesus in his presence in his home. And this woman, as far as we can tell, the town tramp, may not have known anything more about Jesus other than that he's a good man and he forgives sin. That may have been all she knows about him. She might have heard him teach. Maybe. We don't know. All she knows is, here's this man. He's a good man. He forgives sin. And he's being insulted publicly at a dinner party. And she can't take it anymore. And so she breaks the rules. She gets up out of her place in the corner and walks around the table to Jesus' feet and begins to weep heartbroken at the way this good man is being treated by someone who should have honored him. Heartbroken at the insults that this kind, gentle, good man is receiving from those who should know better. She washes his feet with her tears. She kisses them. That word had a, had a connection to worship. She fills the whole house with the sweet smell of this perfume. Probably was a sacrificial gift for her because she likely used the perfume as part of her work. <laughs> she now can't take a job or two because she doesn't have any more perfume. She's honoring Jesus. She's doing anything she can. And now it's Jesus' turn to pronounce a judgment. He says, therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. 
but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this that even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So I believe that Simon brought Jesus to his home with the intent purpose of embarrassing him. He, he, he tested him. In his mind, Jesus failed the test, <laughs> and therefore he, he embarrassed him. Instead, the opposite happened. Jesus wasn't embarrassed, but Simon was. Jesus was shown to be both righteous and merciful. That means he had a better understanding of the law than Simon did. The woman is forgiven. It's the same word that's used earlier about debts. It's the idea of it's, it's, it's released from obligation. She's released. She's set free. She never speaks a single word, and yet Jesus commends the power of her faith. So what does this teach us about how to have dinner like Jesus does? I think there are two applications for us this morning. If you want to be more like Jesus, to eat with sinners, two things you have to do. Here's the first one. You need to be unoffendable. Be unoffendable. Jesus had every right to be offended at Simon's actions. He chose not to be. He decided he wasn't going to let it change the way he treated Simon. Think about this. Now, Jesus had already been openly critical of the Pharisees. Right? There's already some conflict brewing between the two. He still accepted the invitation to his house. How many of you, I don't raise your hands, how many of you would, if you had someone that you just drives you nuts at work, said, would you come over to my house for dinner, would be like, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> no, <laughs> we wouldn't do that, but Jesus did. He chose to be unoffendable. In the parable, Jesus, and here's what blows me away. In the parable, Jesus takes on the role of God, right? There's a Trinitarian thing happening here. Jesus shows he's willing to forgive even the little debts. Simon had the, little, the smaller debt. See, Jesus doesn't mince words. Her debt is bigger than Simon's. Her life has embraced sin far more than Simon's has. And yet in the parable, both of them are offered forgiveness. Even though Simon is the one who offended Jesus personally, he's still willing to forgive. And you've got to get this. this. This woman is not just fangirling Jesus. You know what I mean when I say that? She's fangirling? Okay, some of you are old enough to remember the, the British invasion with the Beatles and these screaming girls. And the reason they needed ginormous amplifiers was to get over the sound of the screaming girls She's not just fangirling Jesus, all right? She's overcome, I think, with the emotion that Jesus chose not to be offended. Not because she's like, wow, look, it's Jesus. She's overcome with emotion because of the way he was being treated. In the social context of his day, Jesus had every right to be offended, and he chose not to be. Something similar happened last week in the music world. Um, there's a, a 90s alternative hard rock band called Tool. That's the name of the band. And they're on tour right now. And a young guy went to the show, and he saw some nice-looking dude in the stands, and he asked this guy, hey, could you take a picture of me in front of the stage as a memory? And he handed his phone to the guy to get a picture. What he did not know is the guy he handed his phone to was none other than Eddie Van Halen. That's actually him. This is his son, Wolfgang, who plays with him, taking a picture of Eddie, taking a picture of some rando dude at a Tool concert. Now, here's the thing. 
Eddie Van Halen is probably, he's a living legend, probably one of the greatest guitar players in all of rock and roll history, arguably way more famous than anybody else who's going to be on that stage that night. Sure, man. Click. Guy had no idea who he was taking the picture to, or who he asked to take the picture of. Eddie had every right to be offended. Do you know who I am? Obviously, he didn't. (laughs) But he's like, sure, man. Click. What if we did that? Church, what if we did that with a broken, sinful world that sometimes just doesn't get what God wants out of them? They just don't understand. What if we chose to just not get offended when they say something dumb or offensive about Jesus? What if we chose not to be offended when they brought booze to the home of a teetotaling family? Jesus is unoffendable. We should be too. That's one application. Here's the other one. We need to enter their experience. We need to enter their experience. The the thing that's so striking to me here is the way that Jesus and this woman enter into each other's experience. Now think about this. Every other man in her life has either abused her or condemned her. All she's ever known from men is abuse and someone taking advantage of her or condemnation, smug self-righteousness. And in Jesus, she receives kindness and grace. And then she sees him being insulted. She sees him receiving what she was used to getting. They enter into each other's experience. That Jesus was the only one in her life who'd ever entered into her experience, who willingly took on the social shame that she was used to to reach her for the gospel. He forgave her. See, the reason our redemption means so much, the reason it's so powerful, is that when Jesus offers to take away the sting and the embarrassment and the humiliation of your sin, it's because he knows what it feels like. He's entered into your experience. And he's calling you to do the same. Do this little thought experiment this week. To say, you know, if I wasn't in a relationship with Jesus, how would I feel about this thing? How would I feel about abortion? If if Jesus wasn't my Savior, how would I feel about refugees and immigrants? If Jesus wasn't my Savior, how would I feel about the federal deficit? If Jesus wasn't my Savior, how would I feel about people taking advantage of other... Just work through that in your head to learn how to enter into someone else's experience. What do you do if you're a young medical student and you, your people you're going to work with are old? How do you, how do you know? You're young, you're healthy, you're strong. The people you're going to treat are old and sick and hurting. Enter the old man suit. A team of researchers has created this suit. It, it's, what it does is there are goggles that desensitize, or, or uh, goggles, there are goggles that, that change the way you view. Colors are dimmer and blurry. There are earmuffs that that diminish your hearing. There are wrist and ankle and knee and things that stiffen your joints and make it hard to move. And they're heavy, they're weighted, so that it's tiring to move. And then this Kevlar vest jacket thing forces you 
to stoop. And it puts pressure on your chest. And they make these young medical students wear this so that they have compassion for the older people that they're going to be treating. They've learned how to enter into someone else's experience. John mentioned this earlier. You know, we challenge you to, to have someone at your kitchen table between now and Thanksgiving who's not like you in some way. Did you put an empty chair at your table this week? Pray that Jesus would help you enter into the experience of someone who's not like you, someone who doesn't know him, so that it can fuel a passion for them to come to know Christ. My teetotaling parents, for the sake of evangelism, chose not to be offended when their guests brought wine to a Christmas dinner. And those guests, if they were offended that the wine was not served, were too polite to show it. As a result, we were able to enter into each other's experience and my folks had an opportunity to share the gospel with them. I don't know if they ever accepted it, but they heard it. See, here's what I want you to take home today and we're done. The size of your sin doesn't really matter ultimately, but you've got to love and worship Jesus to receive the gift of salvation. The woman did. Simon didn't. Jesus was willing to forgive his sin, but we don't ever read that Simon actually had those sins forgiven (laughs) she did she did if you choose to be unoffendable your dining table gives you the opportunity to sit with someone not like you and enter into their experience they might say stuff that's offensive and wrong just get over it just choose not to be offended Jesus was able to receive this woman's worship because he had entered into her humiliation by a culture that should have honored him. And he's still doing that, church. He's still doing that. When Jesus died for you on the cross, in your place, he took on the humiliation that you deserved. He took on your shame so that you could be forgiven. What are you going to do with that? If you've received it, you have a mission to pass it on. If you haven't, you've got an opportunity to do it now. We're going to stand and sing a song together, and you've got an opportunity to respond. Maybe today you're sitting at the fringes, around the edge, and Jesus is looking looking at you and saying, do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to be clean? Because he can do that. If if you want to receive that this morning, we're going to stand and sing together. I would urge you to come to the front. We'll have people down here ready to receive you. You you come down front and and you just say, yeah, I just want what Jesus has to give and and we'll take it from there. Confess him as Savior and Lord. Be baptized. Receive the Spirit of God. Have him wash away your sin. Maybe this morning, like you you have a mind. You've got a, a face in mind. You've been praying about someone who, yeah, I want him at my table in the next few weeks. You can pray for them during this time. Maybe you want to talk to a leader. You can go to the next step room. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing, and you respond as God leads you today.